Own a Mac? Want to produce high-quality ringtones, podcasts, recordings of your favorite shows, digitize your vinyl and cassette collections, and so much more? Become an Amadeus Pro Maestro is a four-hour audio tutorial that'll make you an expert in Amadeus Pro, multi-track audio production software for OS X. We'll show you how well it works with voiceover and let you into plenty of tricks of the trade. Pricing starts at just $24.95. To learn more, visit Mosin.org, choose the Mosin Consulting Store, then choose the link for Become an Amadeus Pro Maestro. Welcome to The Blind Side. News and information from a blindness perspective. Here's Jonathan Mosin. Super to have you with us for episode 35 of the podcast. Thank you for being here. I appreciate it. We've been doing a few longer form stories in the last few episodes, but we have a couple of shorter ones in this week's edition. First of all, I'll be speaking with the well-known author of technology books, Anna Dresner, We'll be talking about how she got into this stuff and what makes a good technology author, but then we'll be talking about her latest offering that's published by National Rail Press. It's out now, and it's called 10,000 Steps, White Cane Not Included. All will be revealed in a moment. And then we'll talk with Canadian press journalist Michelle McQuigg about applying for a passport in Canada. It's something that's very easy to do, in New Zealand now because you can apply online. No more fossicking around to find a justice of the peace to sign a form and all that kind of stuff. If you've had a passport before, you can renew it online in what to me is a very accessible experience. Not so much in Canada where one blind person has taken on the passport office there because an official apparently is not allowed to fill in the passport application form in her presence. So we'll talk about that and also about the context in which this is happening, where there is no Canadians with Disabilities Act at the moment, although that is supposedly coming. So we'll have a look at that too. Let me also, as we tend to do, give you a preview of our sister program to this one. This is a live global call-in show that we do on Mushroom FM at mushroomfm.com on a Thursday night's US Eastern Time at 9pm. If you go to the Mushroom FM schedule page, the schedule will display in your own time zone. So if you're not in the United States, you'll be able to find out what time it's on where you are. And this is a kappa at the Mosins. We had a really great discussion last week on the subject, if you were offered sight tomorrow, would you take it? And it really was very thought-provoking with a lot of people calling in with their perspectives. This week, a subject suggested by a listener. Braille, and in particular, what constitutes reading? There are those who say that blind people who use audio exclusively and don't know Braille are functionally illiterate. If a sighted person hears a book, say, on a service like Audible, they would generally say that they had listened to the book. They would make a distinction between reading the book and listening to an audio book. So what is it that actually constitutes reading? If you listen to your screen reader reading a title, or if you listen to a narrator reading a title, have you actually read it yourself, or are you being read to? And what role does Braille play in 2017? What, if any, role is Braille playing in your life? If you weren't taught Braille, do you really regret the fact that you weren't? Or do you think that Braille has had its day in today's technological age? It does seem, though, that particularly in the last few years, there is an abundance of Braille devices coming out and it appears Braille might be going through a bit of a renaissance. So we'd like your view on Braille 
and related issues. And you can call in via the telephone with numbers all around the world. You can also use the Firefox or Chrome web browsers to make a high-quality web call. And if you want to know all of that information, go to mushroomfm.com slash kappa. That's mushroomfm all joined together dot com slash kappa. You can also follow Mushroom FM on Twitter. That's just Mushroom FM all joined together on Twitter and get updates about the programs that are coming up via that source as well. You can also like Mushroom FM on Facebook. Feel the need to sound off? Share your thoughts about this week's show by email. Send an audio file or write it down and email the blind side at mosin.org. To Austin, Texas we go, and an email from Kathy Blackburn in response to last week's episode of The Blind Side. I enjoyed the interview with Brad Turner, she says. I've been a Bookshare member since it began. I was a bit surprised by something Mr. Turner said that I don't think he really could have meant. I even listened to that part of the show a second time to see if I had heard correctly. He seemed to be saying that the moment Amazon got a book... Bookshare would have it. I think surely his mouth ran a little ahead of his brain and he inadvertently picked the wrong example of a partner publisher. Since Bookshare has 535,000-odd titles and Amazon has a million, I couldn't help being a bit surprised by Mr. Turner's statement. Bard, Bookshare, Audible and iBooks have been my preferred go-to sites when I need a book. I hated the old version of Kindle for PC with accessibility plugin and used it only as a last resort for required reading that I couldn't get anywhere else. Needless to say, that was before the iPhone and the other accessibility devices we have now. I did buy more Kindle books once the accessible iOS app came out. I now have an Echo Dot and a Fire tablet. I probably have over a dozen Kindle books on the Fire. Between all my devices and content formats, I will need three lifetimes to get through all the content I have. But what a nice problem to have. Thanks, Kathy. It is a nice problem to have, isn't it? This abundance of books that we have out there now. And of course, Judy Dixon wrote a book called The Abundant Bookshelf, which we have talked about on The Blind Side before. The Kindle for PC experience is now significantly improved. And I'm using it with JAWS on a regular basis. You do have to make sure that the book says that it's offering screen reader support. But if that flag is set, then it's working very well. With respect to the Brad Turner interview, my understanding of his point was that Bookshare has partnerships with a number of publishers, but not all of the publishers that publish to Kindle. And so when those publishers, the ones that Bookshare has an agreement with, publish to a service like Amazon, what they essentially do is turn on a feed and various partners have access to that feed, which means that the moment something is published to Amazon, Bookshare also receives a copy of that book. But of course, Amazon gets more titles because they have partnerships with a greater number of publishers. And that would account for the disparity in titles because not everything that Amazon gets goes to Bookshare due to a lack of agreement with some publishers. So I hope it clears that up. And thanks very much for getting in touch with us. 
Now here's a little song about a man in a shed who was feeling very sad because the Saturdays were dead. So he got a pile of music and some massive speakers too. He cranked up the volume and cracked a beer or two. Steinlager, that is. Real New Zealand beer. No soap suds. At 11 p.m. Saturday, you're welcome in the shed Where it gets live and loud and you'll hear the triple thread The home of the fun guys is the place you gotta be To get inside the shed and to hear from Anthony Oh man, that is crazy boy We were desperate And now, stories making news in the blind community on the blind side. We've covered aspects of health and fitness on this podcast before, most recently when we talked about low-carb living as a lifestyle choice. Now let's talk about keeping active and fit. There are some challenges associated with that when you're a blind person. I, for one, find it difficult to get out there on my own with my cane and wander the streets at a good enough clip to make me feel like I've had an exercise. But these days, there are all sorts of other alternatives and ways of tracking the kind of activity that you're doing. Tech author Anna Dresner has put together a great book on the subject. It's called 10,000 Steps, White Cane Not Included, kind of batteries not included. And Anna joins me via Skype now. And it's really great to have you on the blind side. Welcome. Thank you, Jonathan. It's great to be here. I will talk about the book at length, but I want to talk about you a bit first because yours is a name that many people will know. You will have helped people through all sorts of tech dilemmas and learning new things. How did you actually get into this business of writing technology books? Well, I started out working at the Carroll Center for the Blind Teaching Computers. And from there, I got to know Diane Croft at National Braille Press and eventually she asked me to start writing books for them. So that's basically how I got started. And I've worked on various projects over the years and and got into the, you know, the tech stuff was certainly was always a fairly big part of it and then became kind of bigger as time went on. Yeah, because we go back all the way to ACB Radio. I remember interviewing you in the early days of Main Menu about things that you were doing back then. So you've been writing these books for a while. It's a skill though, right? Because there's no shortage of people who have the knowledge, but there is a skill in taking that knowledge and imparting it in a way that makes sense for people who perhaps may not feel so comfortable with technology. Absolutely. And I think... I, I'm very grateful that I had the years of teaching first, for one thing, because it certainly helps having had a student with me or a group of students and trying to break things down so they could understand it. And the other thing is that I always try to actually do the steps that I'm describing while I'm describing them so that I don't miss anything, because it's really, really easy to forget a step or some little important detail that you might need to know. And so I definitely put a lot of time into trying to make sure that what I'm saying makes sense and is as accurate as I can make it. One of the things I also like about your books is that they are quite chatty. They're sort of personal and you sometimes talk about experiences you and your family have had with the technology that you're using. And so it kind of, it, it makes it very relatable, I think. Well, thank you. I certainly want to do that because 
the only point for learning this technology is to do things that you want to do. And especially if it's new to you, getting a sense of other people using it in their daily lives and how it can be useful, I think, makes it seem like there's more of a point to learning it. And also that they're not the only ones struggling when something goes wrong and that kind of thing. Do you enjoy keeping current? I mean, you've got to keep up. You've been embracing the iPhone and many people have cut their teeth on your book, Getting Started with the iPhone. You've recently put together a book on this burgeoning market of uh, voice assistant-based speakers, which is just ballooning. And it looks like Apple is about to get into that space. Microsoft is as well with the Harman Kardon partnership. So you're keeping up all the time. You've got you've to keep your finger on the pulse. I'm certainly doing the best I can with that. It's a challenge. I mean, doing the books certainly means that I do it more than I would otherwise, because especially when you're talking about multiple ecosystems and whatnot, it's not something you would want to necessarily do just for the fun of it. But it is interesting to kind of see what's what keeps coming along and exploring it. So I, I do appreciate that. Where do you think, just before we get on to the topic of your latest book, where do you think this voice speaker market is at right now in terms of particularly the two big players? I was reading a piece the other day that indicates that they think Amazon has about 70% of this market. Google is the next player, but it's a very distant second. How do you think Amazon Echo, uh, that whole family, and the Google Home compare? Well, I haven't actually used the Google Home because that speaker came out right after my book came out. And and luckily I hadn't even heard of it when I wrote when the book was finished. You you, you don't want to find out about something 2 days before it goes into publication <laughs> and, and then have to decide. We were already in production at that point. I mean, I've heard a couple of demonstrations. It sounds like they're doing some good things. I wonder if some people might find it a little creepy to have Google, who's already collecting so much information and searching so much information, having that extra window into their lives. Uh, I certainly find that a little bit that way. But I guess it will really depend on which one really meets people's needs the most or or which ecosystem. If you've already got a bunch of stuff that works with Amazon you wouldn't want to switch unless there was some compelling reason. But I guess if the Google one works with all of the same home control devices and stuff, I mean, they would need to do that, I think. Yes, I think if there's one piece of technology that Bonnie has really embraced that we've got in recent years, I would put Sonos way up there as a kind of a revolutionary game changer for us. But I think she would put the Amazon Echo because she just uses it all the time. And she loves it for its its ease of use and it just does what she wants it to do. But it's funny because you do get roped into the ecosystems, don't you? The respective ecosystems. And a wee while ago, we bought this new Android TV, this 49-inch television. It's a Sony and it runs Android TV and we've got Eloquence talking on it and it has two screen readers And my first thought after realizing just what a game changer this TV was with two screen readers on it was, well, you know, if we had a Google Home, then we would be able to cast all sorts of things from the speaker, the the Google Home speaker, to the television and probably vice versa. So increasingly, you're kind of getting roped into a particular ecosystem based on the products that you're buying and one may lead to another purchase. Absolutely. And uh, so it makes it kind of hard, even with that voice assistance book, I found it a little difficult to compare in some ways because 
you know, I have a Mac. I'm using the Mac calendar and mail and all that. And so, you know, when I was trying to use Cortana, well, I didn't really want to have to set everything up in Microsoft as well. I mean, I think you kind of run into that. And um, it's easy to just kind of follow whichever ecosystem or ecosystems you happen to be in because switching could be expensive and have a learning curve and all sorts of things. So let's talk about your latest book. And this is a subject dear to my heart. I noticed in your introduction that you talked about how if somebody had told you even a couple of years ago that you were going to write a book on fitness, you wouldn't have expected that that was likely. And I've had the same kind of experience. You know, I'm significantly lighter, much more full of energy. And while I was a little bit, I guess, disappointed with the Apple Watch I got, I found it a bit sluggish. And I I found that for things like messaging and things like that, I still was inclined to use my phone. I just found it a better experience. But eventually, I kind of started giving the fitness aspects a try. And for that reason alone, I wouldn't be without my Apple Watch now. I'm incentivized by the goals that they have and by the data that it collects, and I can track what I've done. And I'm definitely a much healthier person as a result. Is that what happened to you? You mentioned the two-year number, so I guess that's about as long as you've had your Apple Watch. Right. I got the watch when it first came out because I was curious about it. And that was actually, I did a book completely self-published because National Braille Press wasn't interested in a watch book at that point. And so I got one and, and did a journal basically about the process of learning to use it. And certainly the fitness was one of the things I was curious about as to whether, yeah, how that would work and if it would be helpful. And and I agree, it, it really, it is useful in terms of just the reminders to get up and move around. I do wish it would count my outdoor walks as exercise. <laughs> Can't you force it to though? Like if, if you if you go into the uh, workout app and say that you're going to be doing an outdoor walk, can't you actually expressly tell it that you're doing that? Yes, it will, it will count it as a walk, but it won't count it. It won't close the exercise ring. Interesting. Okay. Unless you're going fast enough. And even when my husband and I are walking and we're going, I mean, we don't, we go slow enough that we can talk comfortably. We are not race walking, but I would think that we would be fast enough to, uh, you know, count as yeah, <laughs> some sure. kind of vigorous exercise, yeah. but nope, yeah. <laughs> um, we'll get like two minutes, you know, or maybe five. Well, how rude. The 30 minute walk. It's really annoying. But it has made a difference in, in many respects. I think what's happening is that we are working out what this thing is good at. And you look at how Apple has changed the nature of the side button, for example, and, and what that what that does from its initial purpose. And we're seeing in recent times that a number of big apps are going off the Apple Watch. So you can't get Amazon for the Apple Watch anymore. Google Maps just took their app away. But I think what you're left with is those core functions of of quickly checking some notifications, maybe replying to a message or two, and all this fitness stuff. And I suspect when we see what's next in watchOS, which we'll find out at Apple's Worldwide Developers Conference quite soon, there'll be a lot more fitness emphasis going forward, I would say. I would imagine, because I do think that is one of the most useful things on the watch, what do you think are the unique challenges that blindness poses when it comes to keeping fit? Well, I do think it's a challenge. As you were saying, it's hard to walk with a cane 
or certainly jog safely. I can't really picture that working very well, which you know certainly something a lot of people do um, who are sighted. Um, going to a gym, like you've got to get there. And then I think a lot of people certainly, you know, I would include myself in this category, can feel self-conscious if I'm you know, doing it at a public place like a gym or a class or something. Am I actually doing what the instructor says and that kind of thing? So there's a lot of reasons why a lot of standard health practices or suggestions just aren't usually going to work all that well for a blind person. Yeah, you go to a gym, for example, and it's crowded with people and you're trying to find a piece of equipment that's free. And next thing you know, you've got a leg flying in your face or something like that. It can, it can often be a bit of a difficult environment. Yeah. And then, of course, you know, if you find a treadmill, is it going to be something you're going to be able to actually figure out how to operate? Um, so there's that as well. I love all this data. For me, I'm a very data-driven person and I like being able to look back and see the progress I've made. I, I have a smart scale and maybe we'll talk about that a little bit later where I can track my weight trends over time and it's phenomenally exciting to see the weight falling off. And this is another area where all these devices, whether it be an Apple Watch or a Fitbit, are very good at basically allowing you to see how far you've come and, and keep you honest essentially. Absolutely. Yeah, I think the trackers are really great. I think ju just the basic reminder to get up and move is probably one of the, I mean, it's it's really simple, but I think it makes a big difference because it's so easy to have a couple of two, three hours go by and realize that you have moved, other than moving your hands around, you basically have just been sitting there and being reminded to get up and move, I think is it makes a big difference in terms of health and your back and all kinds of things. How's the book structured? Can you tell us about, I, I believe there's three from memory sections in this book that have quite distinct purposes. Right. Um, I have the first section is about audio programs. And so there's a big section on Blind Alive because they have really wonderful workouts that have been very specifically designed to be clear and described and there's yoga for the blind and uh, some meditation recordings and, and a few other things, um, some yoga. And some of them have apps, but the focus is on audio. And then there's a section on fitness apps, which I tried to be representative, not comprehensive, but at least try to pick things that are pretty accessible and cover a fairly wide range of different types of exercise. And then the third section is on trackers and specifically on Fitbit and Apple Watch. Because I tend to be on the advocacy side of the spectrum, I guess, one of the things that I find very helpful is to keep a gratitude journal and you write down all of the things that you are grateful for. And it's, it's good to look at that and it's good practice to do. When you think about it, we really have come a long way because there was once a time when if you were using a platform, say like Symbian or maybe even Windows Mobile, you would be able to write a book and you'd be able to say, these are the apps that work because there were that few of them. And now, as you say, you've got a representative sample of just some of the apps you can find in the store, be it the iOS app store or the Google Play store that work. It's a wonderful time really that we're living in. 
It really is. And it's really exciting too. people like Blind Alive and the Yoga for the Blind people that are, you know, coming up with specific ones. The fact that we have that and then we have some mainstream ones that work really well. It really is wonderful having a lot of choices and choices for everybody from someone who hasn't ever exercised and, you know, for whom just getting off the couch is like a big accomplishment to serious athletes and everything in between. It's really, really great. Where would you suggest people start? I mean, if somebody has led a very sedentary lifestyle, the actual process of getting going is really difficult because in that situation, if you have let your health and your fitness slide considerably, it's not going to take you much effort to get you puffed and then you get discouraged and there may even be some health issues involved in, in, in reversing a pattern of, uh, of being, being still. Where do you think people should start with changing their lives in that regard? I really think the Blind Alive programs are really good and they have a series of 20-minute gentle workouts that really are quite gentle That's nice because you can use them sitting or standing. So later on, you can do more with them. And if you don't want to do anything that formal, just getting up and walking around every hour would probably make a big difference. And I think the thing that's nice is that the nice thing about exercise is that even a little bit of movement makes a difference. It's not the sort of thing where if you don't do it 30 minutes a day, five days a week, it's useless you know, any little bit is really helpful. And I think if people can keep that in mind, you know, hopefully then they won't get as discouraged because I do think sometimes that, you know, you can hear these goals, everybody should do this much of exercise or whatever, and just I'll never get there and be discouraged. But knowing that even a few minutes of getting up and walking around or, you know, will will make a difference, I think is should be encouraging. I was really impressed that you also included some meditation and hypnosis-based apps, and meditation has significantly changed my life for the better. But some may be curious about why you would choose to put those in a fitness-focused book. Well, for one thing, it is a pretty common thing to, to combine these. Like both the Apple Watch and the Fitbit app have breathing exercises at this point. So there's kind of a general recognition, I think, that not only being active is important, but actually paying attention to what's going on in the present moment or paying attention to a few breaths or whatever really can make a difference to your health. And since it is something that there are some good resources for, it seemed like a good a good fit. And I've, I've got a little bit of some stuff on sleep too, because I know that sleep is an issue for a lot of people. And of course, being more active can help with that. But there's a lot of other things that, that can be really helpful for, for, you know, for reducing stress and hopefully getting better sleep. And all of that can really improve your health. Yeah, that's one thing I have yet to crack. I think if your circadian rhythm is on free fall, it's really difficult to do anything about 
about it. <laughs> it's, it's, it's a bit tough. But there, there are some great apps in the Sleep Plus Plus app that you focus on. And I don't want to mention all the apps in your book because hopefully people will buy the book. But it, it is doable, isn't it? I know some people are concerned about the Sleep Plus Plus app, which is an app that runs on your Apple Watch and you track your sleep with it. And people say, well, the Apple Watch's battery life is such that it doesn't lend itself well to an app like this. But as you say in the book, I find that I've probably completed my three goals and I'm on a very long move streak at the moment where I have completed them for a very long time. And I find that probably by four or five, maybe six at the latest, I've completed them. And what I then do is uh, put my watch on charge at that point when the goals are done. And by the time it's bedtime, it's well and truly charged. It, it doesn't actually take that long to charge. And then you can run the Sleep Plus Plus app overnight. Right. Uh, you might be able to get enough charge by putting it on the charger when you get up in the morning while you're kind of getting ready and having breakfast and that sort of thing. And then for a little while in the evening, um, I've heard of uh, some people will – put their watch in airplane mode while they're tracking their sleep because then it doesn't use very much battery at all while it's doing that. So yeah, it's definitely doable. You have to think about it a little bit. How is this going to fit in my particular life? Because you do need to charge the thing pretty regularly, but thank goodness it does charge quickly. So that helps. This is the best example I've seen of somebody having a go at essentially acquainting the uh, reader with where a Fitbit might be appropriate and where an Apple Watch might be appropriate and the relative merits of the two ecosystems, as it were. One of the things that has always put me off Fitbit stuff, and, and that includes the Fitbit Aria scale, which I was seriously considering when I was looking at smart scale technology, was that it just does not talk to the health app unless you go through some sort of third-party bridge, which can get a little bit geeky. So if you're very steeped in the Apple ecosystem, that's probably a significant downside, don't you think, of going with Fitbit? That would be, yeah, if, if that matters to you. On the other hand, Fitbit does keep track of a lot of data and let you know what's going on. So if you don't really care that much, I mean, you're going to get a bunch of data there as well. So I guess it really depends on whether you care about all your data being in the health app or not. I certainly think that the Fitbit, I was certainly more impressed with it than I expected to be in that there's so many different varieties. So you really can pay for the features you want if cost is an issue you know, you can get something for like $100 or so that's going to track most of what you might want. And it will interface with an iPhone or an Android or a computer. So you have a lot of options there. The fact that it doesn't have any accessibility in itself that you need the app can be kind of annoying. But then most of it is accessible in the app. So, I mean, at least it is a, a pretty low cost way to go. On the other hand, of course, the watch does have the the health integration, which is great, and it has a screen reader, and you can run other apps on it, and so it's useful for a lot more things. So you get what you pay for in that sense, but I, I do think that if you, for somebody who either doesn't really care about all those other features and basically just wants something to track what they're doing... Uh, the Fitbit is certainly viable. It just you just need to think about what's important to you. And I hope that I've 
that in the book, I kind of lay things out enough that people can consider the facts and decide what might make the most sense. Yes, and of course, the reverse is true of my earlier point that if you're an Android user, for example, I mean, you are really locked out of the Apple Watch, aren't you? Because for now, at least, it's very much dependent on an iPhone. It's, it's useless without an iPhone. So if you, if you own right. an Android device, you, you're not going to have the Apple Watch as an option, at least for now. Right. You talk about the, the range of Fitbits. And one thing that I was left curious about after reading the book, and I don't know whether you have an answer to this, but... For me, the calories I consume aren't the important thing. It's the carbs. And I wonder whether Fitbit can be trained, adapted or whatever to keep track of the carb count of food that you eat rather than the calories. Well, there is the whole food section. And I didn't do a lot with that because my since my focus was really not on, you know, we've done other books on food. And so I wasn't really focused there. I did notice that you could look stuff up and get various nutritional information about it, whether you could specifically count uh, carbs or other kinds of um, nutrients. I'm not really sure, honestly. You mentioned smart scales in the book. I went through a process of of trying a whole bunch of these a wee while ago, and I settled on the Withings one. I'm pleased to say that the Android app has always been very accessible, and now the iOS app has actually caught up. And that is one advantage of having access to both platforms is sometimes you find that on one operating system, it's just significantly better. And it's not always one over the other. It, it can vary a lot. But I like the Withings because it does integrate with the health app, uh, which is important to me because as an Apple Watch user, so much other data is in there and it's Wi-Fi. Sure. So it means that I can just go into the bathroom in the morning where the scale is and step on the scale and I don't have to have the phone there. I don't have to have an app running it just uploads that data to the cloud when I step off the scale. And the next time I open either the health app or the Withings app, the data's there. So that's that's pretty sweet. That is really cool. I have not done the, the smart scale thing, but I can see what, the, you know, I can certainly see the appeal and then having that data stored automatically. Um, I mean, certainly if you want the health app to keep track of your weight using some kind of smart scale makes a ton of sense because who wants to sit there and type it in manually? Yeah, yeah, for sure. And there's all sorts of stuff. I was reading a very interesting article a few weeks ago on exercise equipment that integrates quite tightly with the health app. And there's actually a lot of it about now. So you can buy a treadmill or even a rower and it somehow measures what you're doing and puts that data straight into the health app. And that could possibly be a bit redundant, I suppose, if you've already got an Apple Watch. But I imagine because it's specialized equipment, it could be quite accurate. Yeah, that's really cool. I was just having a conversation on Twitter with somebody today who was saying that they had been reading that an Apple Watch or Fitbit didn't really account for calories on a treadmill very well unless you were swinging your arms, which, of course, is a blind person you're not going to just stand there. I mean, you're going to want to hang on to it at least with one hand. I was thinking, well, maybe you could hang on with one and swing the one that has the tracker on it. But certainly the equipment would probably make it a little more accurate. And if you strike gold and you get a treadmill with an iOS or an Android app, 
that allows you to set the incline and maybe set a little routine where you start off gently, increase the speed, up the incline and stuff like that. If you can get an app like that that's fully accessible, then that is pretty good because I I remember the treadmill that I used to have. It was all done from memory. There were a bunch of buttons on the screen and they would beep and luckily for me, they didn't wrap. So you could always get back to a known point. But there was a lot of muscle memory involved in that. Yeah, that would be pretty tedious. Um, I didn't get a chance to to do that. Testing out equipment and all that would be, you know, a level of cost and living space and everything else that was just not practical. But And I imagine these things change a lot as well. But it's really cool that the apps can change and can control so many things. It seems like the odds of actually getting one that has an app that works are certainly going up all the time. I find it fascinating with technology in general that sometimes we are the catalyst. So when you look at the talking book, that was the catalyst for the 33 RPM record and the reading machine became the scanners that so many people have in offices and, and so on. We were way ahead with uh, with e-books. We were reading them on our, our Braille lights and similar devices uh, long before sighted people were getting into ebooks, and then sometimes the reverse is true. And what's happening now, I think, is that inadvertently, with technologies like the Internet of Things, we're finally cracking this difficult barrier of access to appliances, which have become increasingly menu-driven. But now that we're getting to a point where you can control these devices on your smartphone, we're finding a solution to that tricky problem. Yeah, and I was just thinking, I don't know if it exists yet, but to kind of come back around to the um, voice assistance, wouldn't it be cool if you could control your treadmill or whatever from an Echo or a Google Home or whatever? So you're doing well and you want to push it harder, you could say, you know, go an extra minute or something. That would be pretty neat. Yeah, it would. And if it's not happening now, I'm sure it will eventually because you look at the way the Echo has quite nicely integrated with IFTTT, which is a wonderful service. So you can do all sorts of things. I think that it will it will happen. So we, we live in, in exciting times. So can you tell me a bit about where we get the book and what its price is for those who would like to have a read of this? Uh, yeah, you go to www.nbp.org as in National Braille Press. And the easiest thing would be to search for fitness or 10,000 steps. If you happen to remember that, it's spelled out, but probably just simplest to look for fitness. And it'll be like the second thing that pops up. And it's uh, $12, and it's in Braille and uh, Word document and DAISY, and you can get it as a electronic file or hard copy Braille. And uh, through the end of July, anybody who orders the book is entered automatically into a drawing to win a uh, Fitbit Flex. Dude, what does that one do? Uh, that's the one that I do, I, I, it does not measure heartbeat heart rate, but it does movement and uh, sleep tracking, uh, which of course is going to be based on movement. I can't, it's not, won't involve heart rate. I think that's also the one that's waterproof. So if you want to take it swimming, you should be able to do that. That's a really good deal. And and only $12. It's a really great read. And I learned some interesting things. So I hope people will check it out and um, lead a, lead an active Life. So this is 10,000 Steps, White K not included, and uh, the author is Anna Dresner, and you can find it at nbp.org. And I really appreciate you coming on the podcast. It's great to catch up. 
Well, thank you so much for having me. It was great fun. We'll return to our guests on the blind side in just a moment. Ransomware, malware, spyware. The internet has opened up so many opportunities for us as blind people, but there are plenty of scary dudes out there who want to steal your identity. Although it may seem the height of chic to connect to a free public hotspot somewhere and keep on working, doing that without the appropriate security, well, it's kind of like jumping out of a plane without a parachute, really. When you connect to an unencrypted Wi-Fi hotspot, it's like broadcasting on the radio for everyone to tune into. It's true, more and more websites are taking care of this by being encrypted, but there are still many that are not, and that means unscrupulous people can find out lots of stuff about who you are, and in the worst case, even a password or two. So don't connect to a public Wi-Fi hotspot without HMA VPN. Running the app on your computer or smartphone encrypts all your traffic, keeping it safe from prying eyes when you get some work done in a cafe. Identity theft is time-consuming, potentially costly, humiliating, and it happens to real people like us. So do the smart thing. Subscribe to HMA VPN. Enjoy those free public hotspots and peace of mind at the same time. For more info, head on over to mosin.org slash HMA. That's mosin.org slash HMA. Get peace of mind and support the Blindside podcast at the same time with HMA VPN. Our place, our issues. The Blind Side with Jonathan Mosin. I've just got through the process of applying for a new passport. Mine has expired, and in the kind of work that I do, it was necessary for me to renew pretty quickly. The whole process for me was online, and the only hassle that I had was that because I have a congenital condition that makes my eyes look a bit interesting, getting a passport photo they would accept took two or three attempts. But it was a very accessible, inclusive, easy process overall. Things in Canada for some blind people haven't been quite so easy when they've been seeking to get the assistance of people at the passport office to make a passport application. And we're joined once again by someone who we have heard from on the blind side before, but not for some time, Michelle McQuig, who is with the Canadian Press. Michelle, it's great to have you back. It's great to be back. I was interested to read your coverage of this, and you've done a couple of pieces on this now. Can you talk us through this story? How did it come about that passports have become such an issue in Canada? It turns out that this is actually not a new issue, uh, but it was new to me. And I came across someone's Facebook post. She went on a bit of a rant after an experience at the passport office, and I'm reading this going, "Are you holy smoke, are you kidding me? So... I felt that this was worthy of further investigation. I wasn't sure if the experience she had was the result of a rogue office or a faulty policy, so I decided to dig in a little bit. What happened to her was that she went to the passport office in Windsor, Ontario, which is a border town, right down the Canada-US border. She went with her husband. They were both going to renew their passports, and her husband is cited, and I mention this because it comes up later on. Rebecca, the woman in question, decided that it would be faster and easier to have someone at the passport office just fill in the forms and make sure everything was done just so. (laughs) Thought that would be the most efficient way to handle things, but was told when she reached the office that they couldn't do that. Uh, The guy told her, quote, it's not my job. Uh, It turns out it's a little simpler than that. It really isn't his job because it's formal policy. In, in In Passport Canada has decreed that no one can fill out a form on anybody's behalf, no matter the circumstances. 
because passport forms and all the documentation associated with it can be brought into evidence if cases of forgery were to arise. So that's the reason for the policy that they had in place. But Rebecca didn't know about this and was a little flummoxed by what was going on here. Uh, she escalated the situation to a supervisor, uh, received the same message, and then a bit of a comedy of errors ensued. Uh, they they offered her a Braille form, which I find hilarious because, of course, you can't fill that out. Right. Cool. So it's only information read- about what's on the form, but it's it's yeah, not a means of completing the, the form. Cool, but you can't complete the form. Yeah. Uh, I, it sounded to me that people didn't quite understand that, and Rebecca was trying to point this out. But then that proved to be a moot point because they didn't have any Braille forms in stock in the office. <laughs> so back to square one on that. They then offered a, an alternative that actively made me laugh when I read it, which was to have her handwrite the form. And she said in her words, I'm going to play this farce out to its natural conclusion. I'm going to do that. I'm going to stand here and waste this guy's time for half an hour. Someone's going to have to hold a signature guide on every line. And woe betide the guy who tries to read my form at the end of the day. But yeah, I'm going to do this. Is your policy? Fine. We'll, we'll go with your policy. So the guy would read the questions um, and then she would have to yeah. handwrite the answers, which, of course, not all blind people would be capable of doing. Um, not not I all sure blind. Could do, I couldn't do it. Not no, no, I couldn't do it either. Yeah, so she, she wrote this. And uh, so what is actually the material difference between her dictating the answers to the guy from the passport office and going through this rigmarole? Well, that's the whole point of the question or her whole issue is that in fact there is no difference in fact this it would be much more efficient she was perfectly willing to let's say sign a form saying i authorize you know john the passport employee to fill out this form for me if there were issues of forgery at stake she was more than happy to grant any kind of authorization along those lines but they didn't have that any kind of proviso in place for someone to exercise that option um, the other point that came up that was pretty funny and that also was sort of revealed to be a bit of a joke uh, was the forgery issue wasn't raised in Rebecca's experience. That came to light through my reporting, and I'll come back to that. But Rebecca was told uh, that we can't have anyone you know, leading the applicant. We can't be putting words in your mouth or, or directing the questions the wrong way or whatnot. So while Rebecca was filling out the form with the assistance of an employee, handwriting the form, rather. She'd say, okay, this is the line where they want your first name. So write Rebecca, the employee would say. And she'd say, wait a sec, isn't that leading the applicant? (laughs) (laughs) Yes, my name is Rebecca, but why are you doing this? And then it got really goofy at the end at the part for the references because everything else was filled out. And at that point, the passport employee was more than happy to fill out the references section. So she's going, what on earth is this? Why can you fill out the references section and even go and look up addresses online, if I asked, but not the rest of the form? So it just seemed completely goofy to her, and I understand that completely. So she put up this Facebook post, it crossed my path, and I spoke to her and then asked about what the official policy was. Because I wasn't sure if this was just the Windsor office being a bit of a mess, Turns out, no, Windsor office was following all protocols to the letter. The protocols state that you they don't actually keep Braille forms on physical passport office sites, and no one can fill out forms. That's a matter of national policy. 
Is their problem then that they don't want anybody filling in forms? In other words, if if she got her sighted husband to assist her, are they unhappy with that as well? Or is the issue that they perceive a conflict of interest in being the people that help when they could be the people who also have to investigate fraud later? Is that the issue? They didn't delve into whether there's a conflict of interest, but certainly they would have been more than happy to have Rebecca's husband help out. In fact, they asked him to do so. And he, obviously knowing his wife, said, no, she's doing something on principle here. If she asked me to fill it out, I'd fill it out. But why are you assuming that I'm equipped to help her here? What if I'm dyslexic? What if I wasn't her husband? What if I was someone she got chatting with in line? What if I was a cab driver that she just paid to hang out and bring her home? You, you can't just assume that because someone walks in the door or appears to have a companion that that person is fit to fill out a form. And if the applicant expresses an independent wish to have their form completed through a different channel, that should be accommodated. So this is a refusal on their part to provide what I would have thought is as as an absolutely eminently reasonable accommodation. Is there disability law in Canada or any kind of human rights legislation that this could be contravening at this point? Not at this stage. Uh, national disability legislation is actually in the works as we speak. There is none. There is a provincial law. But Passport Canada being a federal issue falls outside of the jurisdiction of the accessibility laws in place in Ontario, where uh, where we're located. So this would be a problem under the proposed legislation, but we don't have much of a sense of what that's going to look like just yet. We just know that it would passport offices would fall very much under the purview of those new laws when they come into effect. And as is often the, the case year. with stories like this... Once one story gets out, you find out there's a bit of a pattern emerging there, and you did a follow-up piece on this. I did. And here's the thing. When Rebecca was protesting about the handwriting issue, she raised quite rightly the fact that this has impact for people with disabilities beyond blindness, and that's, in fact, what happened uh, mere weeks afterwards. I was contacted by another guy in Toronto this time who has cerebral palsy and has limited use of his hands, and was not he hadn't seen my previous coverage didn't know about this policy, uh, and went to an office using paratransit. He's a wheelchair user, and he was requesting help because he can't use his hands very much and went through the same rigmarole uh, without, of course, the handwriting option. He, in his case, his solution was to take the form, go home, have an attendant fill it out, and then wheel back out to a post office to mail the form, even though he'd been at the passport office three hours before. What kind of reaction has there been to this, I guess, from the public, but also from officials who may be able to turn this around and make a difference? There has been a lot of surprise on the on the public level. Many people were not aware of this particular rule. There has been some negative side, though, as well. Rebecca told me that she came in for some attacks locally. Uh, she is fairly vocal in local politics and, and makes her opinions known. And uh, she came under attack for not just letting her husband do it, and she's always complaining about something being inaccessible and blah, 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 blah. Uh, so I'm sure we can all envision how that might have played out on local talk radio, etc. Mm. But broadly speaking, I didn't encounter a whole lot of that in, in what I saw in, after my coverage. And on the official level, I was contacted by the opposition critic, or not the opposition critic, but a parliamentary critic, uh, for disability issues, who intended to raise this issue specifically with the minister in charge of such things. 
So certainly it landed on that radar, which was cool to see. That doesn't always happen. I never did hear a response from the office of the politician who's in charge of this, but I hope to connect with her later, and I expect to raise it then. And since this arose, Passport Canada has announced that they're going to review this policy. So that that felt pretty good to hear about that. Mm, Do you think that's a way of parking the issue, or do we have some sort of deadline at which point we'll find out how the review went and whether there'll be some action taken? We don't have deadlines. We never do. But they do have a pesky reporter who's going to keep checking in. (laughs) (laughs) Yay for the media. (laughs) Can can you renew a passport online in Canada? Start to finish, you can't. But I, I, I will say this. There is a downloadable PDF that is entirely accessible. I completed my own passport renewal that way. So you fill out the form, you bring it to an office, you hand it in, and that's you, know, you deal with the photos and, and whatever other minutiae are part of that. But that part is entirely accessible. But, of course, not everyone has the technical resources or know-how to make use of that option. Right. But, I mean, presumably in the case of this applicant, if she's on Facebook, she would have had the option to, to do that. She would, and I don't personally know the circumstances or I don't recall the circumstances as to why she didn't choose to pursue that option. But frankly, that's not my business. Uh, the fact is that they're, in the case of certainly this guy in the wheelchair, uh, he wouldn't necessarily have had that option either. He, he himself did not have a printer. Um, that, that was his reason for not using the PDF. So there I, are all kinds of considerations. And I, I, don't, I personally don't think anyone ought to be penalized for not exercising the most convenient one. I know it's a somewhat subjective question, but overall, how do you feel Canada stacks up in terms of disability rights? Is this is this an unusual situation where Canada has sort of fallen down in an uncustomary fashion, or, or is there a systemic problem that needs to be dealt with? I'm afraid it's not that unusual, no. The very fact that disability legislation or accessibility legislation is not yet on the books says quite a lot uh, relative to even our neighbours to the south and uh, many other Western countries. I'm not sure where New Zealand stacks up on this, shamefully. Yeah, there's a, there's a um, Human Rights Act in New Zealand which um, prohibits discrimination on the grounds of disability and then you can take various action. I, there is an argument, and I subscribe to it, that the legislation in New Zealand is a little uh, limp, a little toothless, but the legislation does exist and disability is a prohibited grounds of discrimination and, and businesses are required uh, to provide reasonable accommodation. Canada has that as well, enshrined in our human rights, and we have a human rights tribunal. Uh, we have tribunals actually at the provincial level and the, and the federal level. But that's part of the problem is there's a lack of cohesion, and it's hoped that introducing the Canadians with Disabilities Act or some equivalent of that might help unify this whole situation a little bit. But that remains to be seen. Um, we don't know yet what that law will look like, as I mentioned earlier, in fact, we're still waiting to hear on the outcome of their consultation processes that would then lead to the actual drafted legislation. So there are more questions and answers, more gaps than not. Uh, certainly people with disabilities are not without a redress in Canada, but it's a lengthy process. The tribunal system is, is notoriously inefficient, and it can take years for things to to be heard and certainly but but there's lots of interesting stuff out there and and i'm devoting a lot of effort now to trying to bring some more attention to those issues because there are systemic flaws systemic problems that should be addressed 
So there's been a process where people have been consulted about what a Canadians with Disabilities Act might look like, and now that consultation material is being processed, I guess. Do you have a feel for how long that process is likely to take before we might see a draft bill, for example? I'm hoping to hear about the outcome of the consultations any week now, to be honest. We were told it would happen in the spring, and I was bugging the uh, media person a few weeks back. So maybe I should do it again tomorrow. But uh, we were told that that outcome would, would be in the spring. The roundtable's wrapped up in February. And the timeline that they've always put forward for projected legislation would be the winter of 2018. So at this point, we don't have any reason to believe that that timetable doesn't stand. But that, of course, could change depending on how long it takes for the consultation results to be released and whatever fallout may come from that. I've always felt that having blind people in the media is really significant for reasons like this. It's an important, you know, it's good that you are not pigeonholed. I read a lot of stories that you write and they have nothing to do with disability at all. But it's also good that you have the networks and you have the connections and, of course, you have the empathy and, and, the, and the knowledge. So these issues might get some attention that they otherwise would not have received because you're there. I finally came around to that view. I, I resisted it for quite a long time. I think a lot of young journalists who belong to any sort of visible minority group contend with this struggle on some level. I used to joke with a friend uh, who is also part of a visible minority group, and we would joke about how we didn't want to, you know, if we really wanted to get a job at a certain paper, we would play up the specific angles that each of us naturally had. And neither of us really wanted to do that. Well, one day she actually did, and boom, she got hired by the <laughs> paper. Um, I fought the tide a little longer, and I, I think it's to Canadian press's credit that they didn't impose this beat on me. They didn't just assume, oh, hey, blind girl, disability stuff, yep, cool. Yep. Um, they, they never did that. Um, I ultimately sort of reached that decision on my own, that this would be a bit of a self-created beat that I would give myself and, and try to slot in among other things. At, at a wire service, you don't always have full command of your time and you're um, pulled in many, many different directions on a regular basis. Like you said, I, I have to cover all kinds of things. Mm. Uh, today it was a historic sexual abuse lawsuit. Last week it was flooding. Uh, tomorrow I think it's going to be another accessibility thing. So I'm all over the map. But I am putting much more of a focused, concerted effort into disability coverage, trying not to highlight sort of every act of individual injustice, for lack of a better word. I can't write about every time a cabbie refuses someone's service or every time a restaurant sends a guide dog away or every time something isn't closed captioned. I can't do every instance like that. But when I do pick stories that serve as a bit of a, a illustration of broader issues. That's what I try to do is illustrate that there is a broader context to this and show the backdrop under against which these events are unfolding. Yeah, and not only are you doing, I think, the blind community a favour by giving the issues exposure, but I think it's the manner in which you're doing it because it's so easy for the whole inspiration thing to take precedence and aren't, aren't you blind people marvellous for just getting out there and doing anything at all? And so the fact that you are well steeped in the community, you're living blindness yourself, means that the issues are probably given the right kind of emphasis, whereas if it was your run-of-the-mill journalist doing that, you can't guarantee that. It's a lottery. Thank you, first of all. I appreciate that feedback a lot. 
Um, you're right. Most journalists worth their salt, I don't think, would go for this whole inspiration game. Um, but of course, there are different types of media coverage out there. The definition of journalist is pretty fluid. And uh, you're right. You can't guarantee the tone of, of, of coverage. And certainly, if I ever play the inspiration card, I deserve to be fired and lynched online because that's not cool. But I, I did eventually sort of come to the realization that there are instances when I am perhaps best equipped to tell a certain story among my colleagues and peers. So if it needs to be told and I'm the best person to do it, then I better step up. Very good. We'll follow this one with interest. And if there's any follow-up to be done, we'll look forward to talking with you again. But thanks for taking us through that. And I hope that there is some redress forthcoming quickly for Canadians with any kind of disability who just want to be able to have some privacy and dignity and not necessarily impose on family members when they want something as important as a passport. One can hope. Thanks for listening to The Blind Side, a production of Mosin Consulting. On the web at mosin.org.